welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This morning we continue our journey with mental health. As I said, we started last week. We're going to continue it next week with the purpose of talking about an issue that has much stigma, shame, and guilt around it. And regrettably, even this pervades the, the Christian church. And our aim and our purpose over these three weeks as it were, is to talk about different issues and to give folks permission to say, hey, this is how I feel. I am feeling depressed or anxious or suicidal, that there is no stigma, that the church becomes a safe, safe place. Last week, we looked at something that was incredibly personal. Sue very bravely talked about her, her life, her story, when her husband Pete, six years ago, committed suicide. And uh, already we've had over eight, 900 hits on the podcast. From We put both the morning and the night up on podcast to give a rounded story. And combined, we've had somewhere in the region of 900 people download that podcast. And Sue spoke into that quite eloquently and uh, quite incredibly. Next week, we're going to look at the pastoral challenge that comes with the whole area of mental health, how do we how do we respond? How do we react? But today we're going to approach it from a from a practice point of view, and from a very from a more I'm going to say theological point of view. Don's going to speak to some of the issues and the challenges theologically that we find and we're faced in this situation. Then Jan's going to come from it from a professional counselor's point of view, and we're going to have a conversation here at the front over different issues. And it's going to be a conversation. It's not going to be literally question and answer, but we're going to have a dialogue and see where that where that goes. I think I was nervous with Canon Andrew White. I was more nervous with Sue, but I'm even more nervous with you guys this morning. Let's behave ourselves, shall we? <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I'm going to ask you both some questions. Jan, what, are, oh, what is depression? What is anxiety? What is it that we mean by that? I was reading on the, on the BBC website, sports website over this weekend, that Shani Layton, probably the greatest netball player of her generation, if not ever, she retired in July, and she, she has um, said because of anxiety and depression that it's just ruined her, and uh, she's had to give up Nepal at the age of 30. Speak to us, if you can, about that. Well, to be honest, before I even answer that question, Chris, I just need to say that I'm not going to be speaking from a clinical perspective. We have a lot of clinicians in our community here, and fantastic, but from my perspective, I guess I'm describing anxiety and depression from a, a, a man and woman on the street perspective, the whole idea of keeping it simple. So um, bearing that in mind, if I think of depression I, and anxiety, I think of whereabouts in the body do these two things sit? So depression tends to sit in the head and anxiety tends to sit in the stomach area, the chest area, can be up into the throat area. Now, I know that sounds weird, but I'll, I'll often say to people when they're talking to me, you know, I'll say, well, whereabouts in the body is the sitting? Where does it hurt? And more often than not, depression there, anxiety here, okay? Um, they are two completely different things, but they're also related. So if you think of first cousins, there's a similar DNA, but they're different. So I'm going to describe depression now, 
um, with a few things and you'll think, oh, but that's a bit of anxiety. And when I describe anxiety, you might think, oh, that sounds like depression. So remember similarities and differences. So if, I've just got a few things. Um, if I think of depression, most of us think of the term the black dog, which I know that Winston Churchill, it wasn't his term, it was Samuel Johnson's, but he famously popularized that whole term black dog. So when I think depression, I, I think dark, I think black, I think dark moods, I think foggy, I think deep sadness, despair, loss of hope, loss of any interest in life, things that would normally have brought pleasure, no longer bring pleasure. Very low energy, low self-esteem. And I guess just that general overwhelming sense of fogginess. And, and again, normally sitting in your head and in your mind. Anxiety is, again, similar but different. So there's an incredibly pervading worry that you cannot stop no matter what you do. A nervousness, a panicky feeling, a negative sense. The whole world seems negative to you. Huge tension and tightness, and again, that's sitting in your body. Um, thoughts replaying in your mind. You just cannot get rid of these negative thoughts and feelings and thinking. Um, and for those who struggle with anxiety, uh, it's incredibly hard to focus and concentrate. And fear pervades. So it's a long list, but a very simple list, really. Good, good. Uh I think one of the, I wasn't going to re recommend any books, but I actually, uh, have, over this few weeks, have been doing a lot of reading around this whole area, and I came across this book called Troubled Minds by Amy Simpson. She wrote it in 2013, and I had this incredible quote, and it says, your mental illness is a robber. It robs suffering people of at least a small piece of who they are, even during a short-term illness. And it robs the people who love them and the world of healthy, clear-eyed, and beautiful personalities made in the image of God. It robs families of life-giving relationships with people who always love them back. And it replaces those relationships with deep sadness over the new reality. You think that's a good summary of depression and anxiety? Stunning. Don, how does this fit for us, especially as Christians and followers of Christ? You know, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7 says, Paul writes, Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which tra transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Surely, at first glance, this is the answer. Or isn't it? I, I think at first glance... Um, I, I think uh, for me, uh, I would say that's a scripture that speaks to the everyday garden variety uh, concerns that we face that if we don't uh, keep, uh, keep them contained can overwhelm us. I, I would tend to perhaps substitute worry for be anxious. Um, don't be worried about things. You know, we can get worried about all kinds of things, a job interview, a, a mortgage payment, a, you know, a wayward child. And, and if we don't um, perhaps take heed of that uh, exhortation, those things can overwhelm us. But, but I think anxiety of the clinical kind, we are actually dealing with a different animal. 
Um, maybe 20 years ago, I probably would have tritely used that scripture to speak to people who struggled with anxiety. Um, I think something happened in my life, our lives, that changed that probably forever. Uh, about 10 years ago, Karen had an operation on her stomach that went very wrong and resulted in a severe case of post-traumatic stress disorder. And the anxiety that developed as a result of Karen's um, operation was way beyond anything I would say in terms of be anxious for nothing. It wasn't reasonable. Um, and, and I think, you know, had I pulled out that scripture and thank God I didn't, but had I, I think it would have been completely insulting. And in fact, I, I read a, an article just not yesterday, day before it was in the Herald. Some of you may have seen it. And a woman was talking about um, anxiety that gripped her after the birth of her first child. And she talked how different that was from worry. And it was mm. kind of poignant, really, and pertinent. And I wrote down, uh, the person's name was Holly Walker. And she said, my anxiety didn't look like worry. It looked like indecision, paralysis, agitation, and if I couldn't control it, rage and self-harm. So the garden variety of concerns about life, I think, you know, be anxious for nothing. Don't, you know, God, God's involved, and that word that um, Matt brought before from Andrea, you know, God's got this. I think more often than not, we take heed to that exhortation and we trust God, but clinical anxiety is like a tsunami. And it's not reasonable. And, and you know, when, when, it's, uh, when it comes, it comes like a flood and can just simply sweep you away. I, I, I think then to use passages like that actually induces shame and guilt mm. and doesn't help. Um, and, and I think, you know, as Christians, we have to be really, really careful how we use passages like that with people that are struggling with clinical anxiety because in actual fact, they can become a club that beats them further into the ground rather than a, a passage that exhorts them to, to lift their eyes. Maybe this is a bit strong, but I think sometimes pastorally I come across people who've had that quoted at them and it's become a curse over their yeah, life. Yeah, sure. And they just gives them nowhere to go. They feel yeah. guilty, they feel yeah, shame, yeah. they yeah, feel exactly. all the things that that verse isn't about. Exactly. That article you talked about, that Holly lady, she was M the Green MP, wasn't she? And I think she had to... I think she was. She yes, gave up right. because yeah. she just couldn't cope with the whole... Yeah. It's, it's a really good article. Yeah. One of the... One of the things that comforts me in these situations is the biblical characters themselves yeah. who, um, don't know, do they suffer with anxiety? Do they suffer with depression? And think of Jonah, Jeremiah, I mean, did Jesus, uh, Moses. What, are, what have you gleaned from Scripture about this whole area? Well, I think, you know, as you look at the Scripture, the people that <coughs> suffered perhaps from a degree of uh, depression, but certainly to the point, well, in, in some cases, suicidal tendencies reads like a who's who of the Bible. I mean, Moses in chapter uh, 11 of the book of Numbers is saying, basically, kill me, God, I'm done. And then, of course, you know, you, the classic case of Elijah, who, who prays that God would take away yeah. his life. Jonah, who's sitting under the, the, the good plant and praying that he could die. And then even Paul, and this might be stretching things a little, it didn't say he was suicidal, but in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, he said, we despaired of even life itself. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means. I wrote down the passage, the Passion Translation, it says, so completely overwhelmed were we that we were about to give up entirely. 
Now, I don't quite know whether I'd stretch that far enough to say that he despaired of life in terms of suicide, but it does sound remarkably like um, complete burnout. Mm. Uh, and, and in those situations, actually, Moses and Elijah particularly, I, I think there were issues of burnout, the burden that they carried, um, the sense of um, just the weight of what they were under. It's, I think people who don't actually manage their lives and work life balance well mm. and come to a place of burnout often f fall into depression, anxiety. Mm. So maybe that's something we could talk about a bit more if you wanted to, but, but, but burnout can lead to those. Uh, Jonah's a different situation. I think yep. Jonah's anger and self-pity um, probably contributed to his situation in a way that maybe wasn't so true of the others. The Paul situation I'd probably leave because I don't know whether I'm stretching things too far there. But to say I despaired of even life itself sounds pretty overwhelmed to me. Those of us who've been in church, it seems like generations, we would never have heard any sermons around that sort of stuff, would we really? There wouldn't have been a lot of spoken around the weaknesses of these guys. No, not so much. Not so much. And, and, and yet, you know, it's all over the scriptures, you know. Yeah. Uh, out, of, out of the weakness comes his strength. Yeah. I think sometimes as believers we have incredibly unrealistic expectations that somehow we get delivered from life itself and um, I, after 40 years of ministry I look around and say we're, you know, we're all in the same boat mm. in terms of our weaknesses, our susceptibilities and you can be a, a Christ follower of the highest order. I, I think it was Spurgeon who suffered terribly from depression, probably the greatest preacher of his era, uh, if not one of the greatest preachers of the New Testament and had long periods of terrible, terrible depression. It's not unusual. And uh, being in ministry doesn't, doesn't um, exempt you. Um, some of you may be aware just a, a tragic situation in the States just a couple of months back where a, a 30 year old pastor in California took his own life. Um, Rick Warren's family of course, Matthew, you know their son took his own life and being, being an avid Christ follower doesn't remove you from the scourge of brokenness and fallenness and life itself. Martin Luther incredibly suffered with depression. Yeah. John, um, in your experience, share with us why you think there is so much shame and stigma um, around these issues, especially in the church. I guess I can thankfully say that I think that shame and stigma is less now than what it was, for example, 10 or 20 years ago. But um, I think we're now owning the fact that we have a pandemic of depression and anxiety in our society. Um, and we're now owning it in church, thankfully. But we, I guess, I think of our society um, in New Zealand, we tend to be geographically incredibly isolated. We admire things like independence and strength, the I can do it attitude, the number eight wire attitude. All of those things we just love about who we are as Kiwis. But at some level, I think it helps to set us up to isolate ourselves and not be honest about what might be going on in our lives. Um, a she'll be right and an I can do it is just something that is within our DNA and, uh, and that really doesn't help us, I don't think. Certainly, as I say, in our society now, things are so much better, we own it more. Um, I, it was interesting, I was reading some police statistics the other day, and in the last 10 years, police call-outs on suicide and mental health um, situations have tripled. 
And that's, it's a massive, massive situation uh, that we're now dealing with. It's kind of like the common cold, uh, depression and anxiety are now the common cold of our, of our mental health situations. Um, so I guess if I think about it, uh, anxiety and depression flies in the face of all of our cultural norms and messages, everything that we've admired in the past. Uh, and not helpful. I think as a result, people suffer needlessly and terribly. I think in church it's worse. Uh, I think many of us bring messages from our, our backgrounds and our denominations at times where, um, you know, be anxious for nothing. And God is our everything and God is our all. Yes, he is, but that doesn't mean that you're not going to struggle with clinical anxiety or depression. Just jumping in there, you gave me permission to jump in, but you said about the church. I read something over the last couple of days. Even in church, we call them recovery groups. That by very nature, we expect people to recover from such, such things. And sometimes people will struggle with addiction, they'll struggle with mental illness all their life. Even the language sometimes in church doesn't help people. And I'd never thought of it in, in that mm. context. Mm. Totally not. We talk about suffering and, as you say, recovery groups and things like that in our language and our society and in church doesn't help. Um, you're totally right. Because it gives us a feeling, none of us likes feeling needy and none of us likes feeling weak. And so I think we do everything that we can to avoid that sense of feeling or avoid people knowing that that's where we are. Mm. You, you read something to me that uh, was really very powerful. Uh, this was a quote, it actually came out of stuff about um, six weeks ago, this 43-year-old male professional, seemingly everything going well in his life, and uh, I've, I've, taken, I've just taken some excerpts from this particular article. Uh, he says, I am an expert at masking my illness to the point where my loved ones only know that something is up when I am at my very, very worst. I am always telling people to talk about their depression, to share their fears and sadness alike, to be vulnerable. Yet, my sickness controls me so much that I isolate myself from good people so I don't have to talk about myself and my own demons. He goes on to say, we cannot fix what we won't acknowledge. Talk, people, please. If you suffer from depression, talk. Be vulnerable, be intimate, tell another person that you're scared. I found that powerful. Mm. Don, one of the things that Sue mentioned last week about Pete and that really hit me uh, in the preparation and on the day was the importance of living out of our values, mm -hmm. um, having values and not just the, espousing them but keeping them and living them. <coughs> and um, can you, here at Gateway, we, we love our values in that sense, but speak, can you speak to that? Um, yeah. Our values, you know, the, that we articulate, we value people. We value integrity, we value vulnerability, we value authenticity. I think at least two of those impact powerfully on that ability to be able to 
um, relate to other people and talk to other people. The, the, the fact that we love people and the fact that we value vulnerability. The whole issue of vulnerability is the acknowledgement of, of our journey, including the hard parts, the weak parts, the broken parts. So if we can be a community that is honest with one another, um, then I think the possibility of people opening up or the possibility of people coming in and feel safe becomes huge. Um, the, the whole idea of valuing people, no matter who they are, no matter what they've come from, no matter what uh, they manifest in terms of mental illness or brokenness is incredibly important to us. Um, I think we need to be that kind of community. We, we must never lose those values in terms of dealing with people. You know, some of the people that we've had over the years, particularly in the early years of the meal, were incredibly challenging to us. Um, they came with um, uh, obvious mental illness and brokenness. And uh, one of the things I think that I feel um, proud of, and, uh, and I hope in the right sense, was the way Gateway opened their heart to mm. those people. Um, I think of a, a, a gentleman, he's not here now, uh, in fact I haven't seen him for a long, long time, but um, uh, he was an ex-concert violinist, but he blew his mind on drugs. And um, he used to be here most Sundays, and um, Donald uh, invited him one worship week to play in the orchestra, and Donald went to him and, and, uh, and said to him, you know, can you still play? Yeah, yeah, I can still play. Would you like to come? And uh, he came and um, fitted in. I remember asking Donald how it went with, at, the, at the practice. And he said, oh, he was brilliant when he stuck to the music. But uh, when he went off, when he went off uh, script, it was interesting. So, so anyway, uh, some of you may remember this. We had our worship week, we had our orchestra, and he fitted in and played. And you know, he dressed up for the occasion. And uh, I think afterwards, there wasn't probably at least one of our staff who didn't go up to him and embrace him and tell him how good it was to see him. And I just, I felt so stoked that our community, at least at that moment, was large enough to embrace somebody who probably would stretch the boundaries of most communities in terms of their feeling comfortable. Mm. Um, and and the, cra the, the funny thing was at the end of it, um, he went up to Donald and said, uh, would, would you like me to play again tomorrow night? Um, we didn't have the orchestra the following night, so we, we, couldn't, uh, we couldn't fulfill his desire, but just the sense that he felt so overwhelmed. You know, there wasn't a dry eye in the mm. place for the, for the people who knew him. Yeah. And um, I, I think, you know, if we can maintain that value, that God loves all kinds of people, even the incredibly awkward ones, and, and sometimes we don't know how to act around about them. Um, yeah, just funny story, you know, I was in a, a fish and chip shop probably six months ago, and this guy came in, and the place was packed. It was a Friday night, I was buying fish and chips for the grandkids, and, and uh, the, the place was packed, and this guy came in, and I would say mental health, announced himself, hello everybody! Well, the whole place just went deathly silent. We did not know how to respond. So, so I, I thought, man, I'm in. I said, g'day! And he said, g'day! And, and so we had this animated conversation between us with the whole fish and chip shop listening, you know. And I tell you, there were times in that conversation I felt so incredibly awkward. But the interesting thing was, as the conversation went on, more and more people joined until a good part of that fish and chip shop were involved in this absolutely nutcase con conversation. <laughs> 
and, and interacting and getting into it. And at the end of it, I, I was just so glad I engaged him. Um, and I'd love to think that we could be that kind of community. It's not easy, and to be truthful, I felt incredibly embarrassed going, G'day! <laughs> it's like, oh, there's two of them in the shop, you know? <laughs> they know one another, probably in the same recovery group, you know? <laughs> and it ain't gonna happen. <laughs> but I'd love to be that kind of community where we can stretch ourselves out of our comfort zones, that we're vulnerable. I think if we can maintain those values, mm. perhaps we could be a safe environment for a lot of people. I just think I know which fish and chip shop you go to. <laughs> You're going to avoid it, aren't you? Come in on a Friday night and go, G'day! And I'll go, G'day! We're in. John, the whole idea of being a hospital, I know we've got a slight tangent here, but the whole idea of being a hospital I know is important to you. Yeah, I guess um, I've been here at Gateway now for 28 odd years, but one of the things that first uh, attracted me was that I felt safe here. And uh, we would often talk about the church as a hospital. And for me, um, I came in pretty messed up and pretty broken. And uh, I felt like nothing was off limits to talk about. I felt that I could be that person um, that said I'm not doing well here. I didn't have to have it all together. Um, and the analogy of the hospital for me at that time meant the absolute world because um, I certainly did feel like I was a patient, an inpatient, if you like. So, long story, from then on, I know we don't always get it right, but this, this house is a safe house. Um, and I love the fact that because we are a values-based church, for me, it's always been the safest place on earth. And I know Larry Crabb wrote a book called The Safest Place on Earth, which is what church is supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, this place is the safest place on earth. We, we often talk about um, a sanctuary in, in religious terms. And uh, I remember James Ryle many, many years ago talking about the place being a sanctuary, but not in terms of stained glass windows, being a sanctuary in terms of um, no hunting. You know, a sanctuary that mm. is a safe place for all kind of wildlife. And that, that analogy always uh, has struck with me, uh, stuck with me, and I'd, um, I, um, I would labor to make Gateway as safe as possible, um, for it to be a sanctuary where there is no hunting. And um, when you express your concerns that you'll be heard and listened to, which hasn't, you know, as we've, um, um, we've talked about, hasn't always been the, the safest, uh, church hasn't always been the safest place. And sometimes Pentecostal churches mm -hmm. have been the worst of all because we have embraced, and rightly so, um, the victory of Christ, what is available to us in Christ, and have contended and fought for those things. Sometimes, however, I think we've gone to an extreme, you know, as in the confession, you know, the positive confession movement, the, um, the prosperity gospel, and we've pushed the victory of Christ so far that we've tried to make it now rather than understanding that it is now but not yet. And we live with the tension of we see Christ's victory in some situations, but not always fully, and sometimes not at all. That's the reality. We will ultimately see it, but we live with that tension. 
And I think that if we can stay in that place of it being a sanctuary, the reality that Christ's power is present and does heal, but it's not our experience always, so that we live with that tension of now but not yet, I think we can make the church a sanctuary. Two or three things I want to hit in the time that we have left. First of all, Jan, we mentioned it earlier, the whole sometimes burnout plays a huge role in anxiety and leads on a, on a continuum. I mean, there are so many topics that we could cover, but burnout was one that came up last week when Sue spoke um, in terms of Peter having been burnt out and the impact that it had. And it's something, to be honest, that again in our society we see it again and again, um, I think as Kiwis, we're hard workers, we're labourers, generally anyway. uh, Again, we admire perfectionism and we admire um, those who work 24-7. And uh, unfortunately, when people do present with burnout, um, they, uh, we don't catch it earlier sometimes, enough sometimes within our families or within society generally, and often the result of burnout can be complete chemical depletion. So um, they are physically, emotionally, spiritually, chemically completely depleted, and literally have to start again, rebuilding their lives. And uh, to be honest, I've seen many, many highly functioning people who are often perfectionists. and for a multitude of reasons present because frankly, they're working too hard or place way too much value on on working and not taking rest. You know, I was thinking a lot, I think a lot about Sabbath because I don't know about you, but it's hard to do sometimes, but God instituted Sabbath for a really good reason. He instituted rest for a really good reason. Um, But yeah, it just, we are fearfully, we're wonderfully made, we're finely tuned. And if we don't rest, uh, things can go terribly awry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just a, sorry. Do you mind if I jump in there? Um, uh, Jan just mentioned, you know, we become chemically depleted. I think one of the things that a lot of Christians struggle with in this whole area is the uh, idea of taking medication. Mm. Over, over these kinds of issues. I, I know for Karen and I personally, this was one that we, probably more Karen than me, struggled with. You know, um, I shouldn't have to take tablets for anxiety. Um, I, I should be able to overcome this. And, and I, I remember having innumerable conversations with her saying, you don't say that about your thyroid. You know, um, you have a thyroid, uh, uh, an active thyroid, you take thyroxin for that. You never... Um, you never balk about taking tablets that will chemically balance you in, in that instance, but you really, really struggle over this, you know, and it, it's, it was interesting for us, you know. I mean, there was a period where Karen called them her mad pills, and uh, I used to really tell her off and say, don't you dare call them that, you know, don't you dare call them that. You just feed into that whole kind of, Christianese, you know, I'm above this, I shouldn't take these tablets, there's something wrong with me. If, if there is a chemical depletion, and, and that's what takes place with anxiety and depression, uh, and you don't replace it medically, then, you know, uh, the chances of you actually getting recovered 
uh, are minimized. Um, I, I think I may have texted you last Sunday night after the, after the gathering. Somebody came to me and they don't come the gateway. I was going to say, thankfully, they don't come the gateway. But they were, I think they were a visitor. And they kindly, I'm not sure they were, they were particularly kind, but they rebuked me at the end of our gathering because Sue had talked about the whole area of meds and the importance of it and what that, how it affected Pete. She, this lady, rebuked me, let's put it like that. And for about 10 minutes, she sort of was very kind, but she rebuked me for saying, or allowing Sue to talk about meds and staying on meds. She said, well, I was delivered instantly. Oh, God bless you. And I think, good for you, sweetheart. Yeah, absolutely, good but for it's you. But it's just like, so it's just, there is still that mentality, there's oh, yeah. still that in the body. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we struggled with it, you know. I mean, Karen struggled with it. Mm. I shouldn't have to do this. I said, How can, you know, you take, you take heart, I mean, she doesn't, but people take heart tablets, they take <laughs> blood pressure tablets. Nobody has that kind of reaction yeah. to tablets that are going to balance them chemically if it has to do with heart, bloodstream, or any other. But why do, why do we think that when we are depleted in terms of um, the chemical... Uh, content of our brains. It's just, it's nonsense. And that kind of response. Yeah. I'm incredibly thankful she did it to you and not to me, mate. Because <laughs> if she was a regular at Gateway, she would be a visitor from here on in. And a very, very rare one. I'm sure she says she was a friend of yours. It's <laughs> <laughs> probably my sister. <laughs> no. Uh, Rick Warren, actually, I've got a quote here. Rick Warren says, um, if my liver didn't work perfectly and yeah. I take a pill for it, exactly. there's no shame in that. Why is it that if my brain doesn't work perfectly and, I'm, and I take a pill, I'm supposed to hide that? Yeah. So, so. It's, it's classic, you know. I mean, I do understand that we came, we, we came out of a background where you didn't... Uh, I remember somebody's, you know, um, meeting a leader in our church and they, uh, they said, hey, how are you? And, and the person responded and said, oh, I've got the flu, actually. Well, no wonder with a confession like that. And that's how we dealt with... Physical illness, you can imagine saying, I'm struggling with depression. Yeah. I mean, it would be anxious for nothing and everything with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. You know, you would have got a lecture, so you didn't say. And, uh, you know, thankfully, as you said, Jan, I think over the last 10 to 15 years, we've probably become a lot more grounded in terms of reality. Mm. Um, but, but I, you know, you don't have to be ashamed if you're on medication, if you need medication, you know. Now, I know medication can be overdone. We're all aware of that. But you can, you know, that, that, that's an extreme at that end. But an extreme at this end isn't a good deal either. Okay, jumping in on that extreme. One of the things that we're trying to do over these three weeks is to take things that we think that God is talking to us about, speaking about for the values, the sort of the medication came out of last week. One of the things that is, is constantly asked us is this the whole realm of the demonic in anxiety, depression, and ultimately in suicide. So um, on, this, on this continuum, really, of you know, in taking meds, we're living in a fallen world, we make some really dumb choices, we have our DNA affects us, our generational stuff, and the demonic. Talk to that. In the sense of, um, <laughs> yeah, we were we were raised okay. <laughs> in rugby mate. terms. That's called a hospital pass. Uh, we we were raised in the generation uh, of um, going back in Pentecost um, that everybody went straight to the demonic. Yep. Straight sure. to the demonic. Oh, this is demonic. Suicide. It's demonic. And but what I'm trying to say is on this continuum of stuff is like, and we maybe deal with this a little bit more next week, but. 
There's, there's the role of taking pills. There's the role of the fact is that we live in a fallen world. There's some stuff that we need to get prayer for because we have fed ourselves on things that are, we shouldn't be. Mm. You know, you do hard drugs, it rewires your brain. Mm. It, it does. The, that's what I wanted to speak to. That's the mm. hospital part, yeah, really. Sure. sure. Um, that's a massive topic. I, I, just we're holistic, okay? We we are, we aren't. It's easy to say body, soul, and spirit as if somehow they're one here, one there, one there. They aren't. We are an interaction of all of those three things, and all of them affect each other. I mean, you know, when you got the flu, the last thing you feel like doing is praying vibrantly. And that's just a simple illustration of how the body affects us, you know. Um, so I think we have to approach the subject of depression, anxiety, and you know, down the road, perhaps the suicide that can flow from it in a, in a holistic way. We, sometimes if people will come to me and they're saying, I'm struggling with these things, rather than first going to the demonic, the first thing I say is, have you, medic- have you had a medical? Uh, you know, are you working too hard? What's your life work balance? And coming at that, then of course you do explore the other things. My my experience of the demonic is that it more often than not comes in on something that is regularly normal and pushes it further than it's supposed to go. So in depression we feel dark, the demonic comes in on that and pushes it further and along in that direction. I was really interested when Sue talked last week and she, she mentioned sometimes the oppression was so difficult and so bad that she would actually go and sleep in another room. And I think probably she was really picking up on something that was going on. Now, that's not to say that, oh, well, you know, that was all demonic. I mean, there was burnout, as she explained. There were, there were a lot of things happening. But what does happen is the demonic comes on in, in on that and then pushes it beyond uh, where it's supposed to go. You know, uh, I often say about sin, it takes you further than you meant to go. It keeps you longer than you intended to stay. It makes you pay more than you intend to pay. And what happens there is the demonic comes in on that and pushes it. And, and uh, so I think holistic, you know, we have to somehow be holistic in the way we approach this. To go to one extreme or the other, to just simply go medical or just simply demonic, probably is insufficient. I think <clears throat> I think we have to see it larger than that and, and include all of those things. Yeah. <clears throat> John? I always ask the question of myself, uh, because we have to keep short accounts um, with ourselves, but also with anyone I see in terms of I'm asking myself internally, how much of this is spiritual? How much of this is physical, uh, chemical? How much is emotional? And as you talk with people, it's interesting what you find out. Um, some of this stuff is situational. I remember one day um, having what I thought was a heart attack and ready to call an ambulance and I could not, um, I could barely breathe. The pain was excruciating. Down the arm, chest, all of that sort of stuff. And I sat there and I thought it was three o'clock in the morning and I thought, now hold on, hold on. The situation that I'm currently in is quite stressful. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized this is situational anxiety. And a lot of people, for example, you know, struggle with that. I mean, we have our teenagers that are struggling big time 
um, as, as we know in our society. And if I think of the pressures that are on, on them with social media, I think of the peer pressure that they're under, I think of the hormonal aspect of what's happening in their lives, and uh, exam stresses, etc. And it's little wonder that they're not struggling with anxiety. But to be honest, a lot of that is probably situational and may not have become a disorder at that stage. So there's so many things around the emotional, around the situational, around the chemical, and yep, the demonic involvement in the occult and things like that, but uh, it's just really good to ask ourselves the question about what's going on in our own lives, what could this be attributed to? And, uh, and of course we ask it when pastorally we're spending time with people. We ask those questions mm-hmm. very holistically. Yeah, time time is going, and I'm just going to sum up in a couple of moments with a, a sense of hope for the future going forward for us all. I do have to ask you one question, Don, because this comes up time and time again, especially in the whole area of suicide and those who are coming out of a, a certain tradition. The whole area of is suicide the unforgivable sin? Mm-hmm. You know, we've probably been asked that 20, 30 times yeah, in the sure. last week or so. A lot of people come from that tradition. Can you just speak yeah. to that? In, in short, no. Um, the one unforgivable sin is, is um, outlined by Jesus as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I would want to say suicide is sin, without doubt. I don't think it's the unforgivable sin. Um, I remember, uh, you know, I've had to, over 40 years, I think I've had to do three or, I think three funerals for suicide victims, victims maybe, maybe four. And I remember the first one I did speaking about the possibility of hope, and somebody came to me straight afterwards, and again, you know, it was one of those situations like, I need to correct you. You know, the Bible says in Corinthians that he who destroys the temple of God, him will God destroy. And you can't speak hope into a situation like that. The problem with that is that that's, that passage isn't talking about our bodies as the temple of God. You know, the person had said, if you destroy the temple of God, your body, then God will destroy you. You, you know, that, that's, I'm sorry, but that's eternal hellfire. That passage doesn't relate to our personal bodies. It's talking about the corporate body of Christ. And I think the idea that suicide is the unforgivable sin came out of um, St. Thomas Aquinas, the Catholic theologian, who basically took the line that um, sin unconfessed ultimately leads to eternal destruction. And since suicide is sin and then cannot be confessed, ipso facto, you know, eternal hellfire. Um, The problem with that is um, I I suspect if eternal hellfire awaits people who have unconfessed sin that most of us are in big trouble. Um, Because we have areas of sin that we don't even know about. You know, our hearts are layered and and the reality is nobody's in the place where they can say, well, I'm clean as a whistle, you know, everything's dealt with. We're going to be all in trouble. And so... I would want to say, no, I don't think it's the unforgivable sin. However, as I said, I would want to say it is sin. Um, I think it cuts short, obviously, the purposes of God, the possibilities of God, the potential of God in a life. And to simply say, as so many people do, trying to compensate for that era at the other end, well, they're now in the presence of God and, you know, suicide straight into the presence of God in the hallelujah chorus. I don't know. One thing I know is that the Bible says he will wipe away all tears, which to me implies there might be a few. 
And I'm not suggesting purgatory or any kind of period of, you know, well, I'm sorry, you don't go straight from there to there. You need to be slapped around a bit, and so stay there. I'm not talking about that, but I am talking about the awareness that perhaps something has been aborted that shouldn't have been, Mm. that potential and possibility and purpose has been cut off. And the possibility of some tears around that might be very real. I don't know, I'm surmising, and you don't have to agree, I'm not, it's just my thoughts. Um, But I don't think it's the unforgivable sin, and if you've lost a loved one to suicide who was a believer, and the funerals I did for people, uh, in each case, they were people who were Christ followers with all their brokenness. And I could speak, I think sincerely, words of hope in the midst of that. You know, when people are suicidal, when they're so deeply in the abyss, um, you don't, they don't make good choices. You know, you say, how could they possibly think that? Well, the reality is they weren't thinking in the way that normal people think. You know, it's so dark, so desperate that some of them actually make the choice thinking that it's for their loved ones. Their loved ones would be better without having to put up with this. And although the, although the choice is misguided in actual fact, sometimes it appears at least to them in their confusion and darkness that it's a selfless choice. Yeah. So your heart's got to go out to that, eh? I mean, mine does. Musicians, could you come and join us, please? Yeah, just think I had a neighbour who, um, back in Wales, who committed suicide, and uh, he thought he was around cancer, and he thought he was doing it best for his family. He didn't want to be a burden on them. And his mm. mind wasn't wasn't functioning right. Mm. He wasn't in a good place. Mm. Yeah. You have to you have to think in that situation. God must have incredible grace and mercy yeah. in the confusion of the thinking, yeah. don't you? Yeah, totally. And to simply say, sorry, you, you can't get into heaven having done that, just as, yeah. I mean, even from our perspective, seems merciless, and from his perspective, I, I just can't see it. Yeah, We're going to close. I just want to talk a little bit about hope, the hope that we have as Christians going forward. I mean, this is, this is a three-part series. There'll be lots of things that we probably need to recover, revisit again next week from this week, but it's just a, we're just dipping our toe in the water on this whole area of mental health. Some, you may say, oh, well, we didn't t- talk about that, or could you unpack that further? We're not gonna, there's lots of stuff we're not going to cover, but in these three weeks, we're doing our best to give people permission to talk about these areas in a safe and secure environment, this, this hospital called, called Gateway. Just talk us a little bit about hope as we close, the hope that we have as Christians. I was thinking about this in terms of story and then realised that, you know, in in the work that we do here, we have many, many, many stories of of breakthrough and hope, and so to pull out one is probably not sufficient in in any means, but I guess um, there's always that holistic, multi-pronged approach, if you like, and so if I think of, we don't see many miracles when it comes to these situations, to be honest, I I wish we did more, but we see many, many, many healings. Miracles are instantaneous, healings are a process. And this whole situation of working with mental health is is a process. There are many interventions, God is, um, he's the one behind the medical professionals, 
we always talk about people going to a GP, we talk about counselling, we talk about the need for community, and all of these things add to that whole healing process. I remember many years ago being told that uh, all counsellors do is hold people till God comes. And initially I was a little bit confronted by that and thought, all this training for God to come, and that sounds awful, but, but that's absolutely true. That's exactly what I do, is hold people till God comes. But that's what we all do. We all hold people until God comes. Whether that's that you drop a meal off to someone or you drop some flowers off to somebody or you genuinely say to someone, how are you going today? I remember our conversation last week, you weren't doing that well. You are holding people until God comes, and God is coming through you. So I guess for me, um, I mean, we, we, we believe in a God of hope, a life-giving God, and he does heal. Uh, and he uses us. He uses us. I don't think I can approve on that, so that's great. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.